Good morning. Join me as we continue, as we pray. Let your gospel, O Lord, come unto us, not in word only, but in power and in much assurance and Holy Spirit, that we may be guided into all truth and strengthened unto all obedience, enduring of your will with joyfulness, that abounding in the work of the faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope, we may finally be made partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, uh, reading chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Again, that's from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a, you can turn to page 536 in the Pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of, uh, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. AD 69 was a long year, as some historians of Roman history would call it. It was filled with much conflict and civil war. There's a deranged emperor by the name of Nero who in AD 68 took his life and after him um, a guy by the name of Galba became the emperor as a successor. Now when the word of this event, a new successor came, um, and reached the eastern boundaries of the empire, there are two generals named uh, Vespasian and his son Titus who were busy uh, around Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Now, Titus, the son, he dropped everything and wanted to head back to Rome. He wanted to congratulate the new emperor because he wanted to be one of the first to greet the new guy and make sure that he likes them. He liked them because... If that happens, chances are 
your future will work out well. So Titus' plan, he heads out on this long journey back to Rome to greet the new emperor Galba. But on his way back, and it, it takes a long time, he eventually finds out that Emperor Galba has been assassinated a few months after he took control. Now another new emperor named Otho took the power. And interestingly, right after he took power, another general thought, hey, this might be a good time. And he uh, decided to uh, declare himself an emperor, and his name was uh, Vitellius. He marched into Rome, and he um, basically overthrew Otho as emperor. Now remember, Titus, on his way back, he was supposed to congratulate a different emperor. By now, you know, Galba's dead, the one who replaced him is, um, and now you have a third of Italius who declares him to be the emperor. What is he to do? Because who you get yourself behind affects your future. You, you tie yourself to the wrong guy, you won't have much of a future. So what does he decide to do? Well, he doesn't go to Rome eventually. He returns back to his father, and he decides to make sure his dad, Vespasian, becomes the emperor. And a few months later, yes, Vespasian, he marches back to Rome, and he becomes emperor. Roman Empire in AD 69 was a tumultuous year. That's probably an understatement. With four different emperors in a span of a year of backbiting and civil war. Because Titus here, he's caught in the middle, recognizing his move will affect his future. You ally yourself with the wrong guy, you won't have a much of a future. Even when you make alliance with a good guy who's winning, you still don't know how long that's going to last because someone else eventually will come to take over. Now, when you think about Roman history of 2,000 years ago, um, you might think, well, it's really far removed, can't quite relate with it. And perhaps, but as you think about your life, the decisions that Titus make, made, who or what to support, uh, while it might not apply to us directly, the world of politics, our future ambition and the work we do, or even the sports that we follow from the teams and the athletes specifically, we do hope often that we'll come out on top supporting the right cause, the right people, the right whatever. The passage we read from Isaiah 9, we, we have a situation that is somewhat similar. Ahaz uh, is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he's really threatened by two different things. Internally, the country has kind of morally rotted away, turning against God. And externally, because of that, God is judging them. And there's an impending attack from multiple fronts, especially from the north, northern kingdom of Israel. Northern kingdom of Israel has allied with Syria, and their armies have been coming, pressing south, taking city after city in Judah. Ahaz is faced with the potential loss of his kingdom, and he's left to decide, what is he going to do? Is he going to get behind this alliance between Israel and Syria that are attacking him, hoping that 
If he does, they'll stop attacking him? Or will he align himself with someone else? Maybe a new superpower of the day, Assyria. Get behind them and hopefully they will protect the kingdom. You see, prophet Isaiah, previous chapters from 7, he pleads with Ahaz, don't get behind anyone. Forsake all this worldly alliance, geopolitical dealing, just let that go. He charged him to trust that the Lord will deliver Judah as he has always done. So what does Ahaz do? Does he take heed Isaiah's advice? No. He forms an alliance with Assyria and, yes, saves Judah in the short term. But ultimately, that decision leads to the devastation of his kingdom too. Yes, in the short term, Syria and the ten northern tribes of Israel, they are devastated by Assyria. But when Ahaz is gone, Judah also would suffer in the hands of the Assyrian. Chapter 9 we just read comes right after the ending of chapter 8 where you have this dire setting. There's a language of distress. There's a language of hunger, rage. There's contempt of king and of God. There's darkness. There's gloom. There's anguish. And in the middle of that context, where it's dismal, defeated, dark, and gloomy, we see a reversal here in chapter 9. Light will come into this darkness. Joy in the Lord will overtake, and a complete victory over their enemy will come for the people of Israel. There's these words of bright gospel hope. Ultimately, in the promise of a child to be born, who we worship as Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's plan was in a person, a messianic ruler, both human, a child will be born, and divine, a son will be given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, meaning he will rule as the king of kings. We're going to look at these four titles that we might be very familiar with. Um, that gives us understanding of this God-man who is king. But before we go into those four titles that you might be familiar with, I want to just point out the verb tenses, which is really interesting and significant. When you especially look at the first three verses, you will notice that, well, this is a prophetic future, but it speaks in past tense. It's a prophetic idiom where they're speaking about the future in the past tense to speak to these people who are suffering to reassure them in the confidence that it is as good as done. In verse 3, it reads, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Now, Judah is still getting attacked. There's pressure being felt by the Syrian and the northern Israel kingdom. Their um, villages are being ransacked, yet verse 3 speaks in a future as if it's already done. It doesn't say you will multiply the nation and you will increase its joy. No. It speaks as if it already happened. This prophetic past tense is meant to assure the children of Israel that, yes, circumstances are bad. It is dark. But God will fulfill the promises he made because he is zealous for himself 
and he will fulfill what he promises. Now, if you look at the structure, basically, um, verses 4, 5, and 6 starts with the word for. So how does this shift, this rejoicing, this victory happen? Well, it happens for oppression will end. Verse 4, it happens in verse 5, for war will cease. And ultimately, all of this, verse 4, verse 5, it will happen for, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. This child that is born, that is given, will be the basis of this reversal that Isaiah is speaking of. The climax of deliverance is a child through this unexpected means. And we're going to look at these four titles ascribed to this child. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you paid attention during the Advent season, you might have heard Handel's Messiah, the verses that echo this um, repeatedly. It's a beautiful melody. Now first, Wonderful Counselor. When you think of wonderful counselor, obviously the word wonderful comes up first, and you might think, well, I mean, you've probably seen It's a Wonderful Life or the song that is in the radio or whatever music app you use, the most wonderful time of the year, and you might wonder what's the relationship between these words we hear about wonder or wonderful and this biblical word wonderful counselor. I mean, wonderful sounds delightful. Counselor, maybe you think someone we need in crisis. So is this what Bible is suggesting? Well, let's take a step back. The biblical word wonderful in the Old Testament means something different than the way these movies and these songs use. It means something more like miraculous something more supernatural. For example, when you look at Psalm 78, verse 12, it reads, In the sight of Israel's fathers, God performed wonders, mighty works, in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through and let the water stand up like a heap. Speaking of miraculous intervention of the sovereign God is what is referring to as a wonder. And when... um, Samson is visited by, Samson's father, uh, Manoah, is visited by the angel of the Lord in Judges 13. Angel replies, because Manoah asked for his name, and says, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful? Speaking about, in the context of something above and beyond natural capacity to understand. Something supernatural. Something transcendent. This is what Bible is really talking about when we say wonderful counselor. And the counselor is not really a great, wonderful therapist. Here we're dealing with bowing before a throne, one who's seated, reigning, bowing before the king. Now, we know that earthly rulers have counselors, offering guidance, lending wisdom in critical decisions. Kings had it. Presidents today have their counselors. But this king... This wonderful counselor has no need of counselors. Earthly rulers sometimes are wise, but sometimes are foolish. They might have insights that are really pretty penetrating, but oftentimes their insights and their actions and even thinking are 
mixed by self-interest and lustful power. Jesus, however, this child who is born, who was born and given, is a king who needs no counselor. Jesus never lacked wisdom in any situation because he was, is wonderful counselor. Today, sometimes it's hard to trust our elected officials. Cynicism abounds. Uncertainty about future, especially today. We see corruption, their biases, and money. Money carries more influence than ideals, and we see that. And Isaiah is reminding us not to place our deepest hope on mere men who are clearly sinful and flawed. He's charging us not to trust in the Ahazes of this world, but with the kind of ultimate trust, not with ultimate trust, but instead, because that fails, right? Ahaz trusted in human wisdom by forming an alliance. Political thing to do, political thing that many kings and rulers do. But instead, we are called to trust in this child, child that is given, that is born, because he has heavenly wisdom. Bible speaks of people trusting in chariots, some in princes, but we are called to trust in the wonderful counselor, Lord Jesus Christ. Later on, chapter 11, Scripture teaches that the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is on this child. It is this wonderful counselor that we are called to trust and worship. Now, the second, mighty God. In Hebrew, actually, the word God comes up first, so God, mighty, or God, almighty, and literally means God, hero. And it emphasizes the divinity of this child. You know, the world we live in usually doesn't have too much trouble accepting the baby Jesus, helpless child. Christmas is okay as long as there's no threat to one's sin, pride, and personal autonomy, right? But once we talk about this child being God, God Almighty, recognizing that he is holy, he's infinite, he's sovereign over all, and, and people start to not want anything to do with him. The world might be okay with Jesus in a manger, but Jesus on a throne is something else for this sinful world. This Messiah is not merely a man, but he's God and man with divine nature and human nature in one person. He is God Almighty. The word mighty, mighty God Almighty, describes a hero. A mighty, you might hear it when we uh, went through First Samuel, mighty men of valor. It's referring to a warrior. So we have actually wonderful counselor, warrior God. And why did God become man? He was born to fight for you. Now, if you go way, way, way back to Genesis 3, when sin ruptured our relationship with God and brought curse upon all creation, God makes a promise, actually a curse, upon the servant and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So at the very beginning of everything, there's a promise of ages long ago of a conflict, this climactic battle between the seed of a serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman that we know to be Jesus Christ will one day come and do the very thing that Adam should have done but didn't do. But second Adam, he did victoriously. You see, he's a wonderful counselor. He lacks nothing in his wisdom. But as mighty God, warrior God, he's able. He is an omnipotent God. He's able to do what he plans. If we trust him, we can say along with Apostle Paul, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His victory is our victory. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we look at the third everlasting father, um, one thing I want to just say, prophet is not saying that the son is also the father. Now, the word father is a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. In the Old Testament, kings were often called fathers. They were spiritual, political fathers of their people. And if you follow along in our uh, podcast, when we went through the Ten Commandments, the, the, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother, um, were also called to honor those God has placed um, over us, including political leaders. So here, fathers are referring to really kings, kings as fathers. And everlasting father is referring to eternal king, everlasting king, who will rule over his people forever and ever. Ultimately, Jesus is the everlasting Father because he reveals God the Father to us. We know the Father by knowing Jesus Christ. In John 1, it reads, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father. Jesus is not the Father, but he makes the Father known. And there's no other way to come to the Father except through him. The Christmas message is that God the Father has revealed himself to the world uniquely in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the Prince of Peace. The word prince is referring to an army commander. It's a formal title. It's someone with an executive authority and has, bears a sh- shoulders the full weight of the ex- executive authority over governing. This, commanding, this commander's war-making ultimately brings true peace, true shalom. And... Uh, is to end wars and to also the broader shalom of well-being in all aspects of life. When you go back to verse 5 of the passage we read, it reads, For every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in the battle tumult 
and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. So you can imagine a scene of great battle. Enemy has been defeated, there's smoke everywhere, and you've won. And that victory is what's being envisioned for us through this child. He fights. He fights for and he wins. And the message is, Jesus wins. He wins absolutely. The child who is going to be the Prince of Peace is the one who fights. He brings peace because he accomplishes peace. He offers peace because he has achieved victory. And ultimately, this peace, as Pastor Eugene spoke last week, is a peace with God through the forgiveness of sins, through paying of the penalty due for the violated covenant relationship that we have. You see, we were once hostile and alienated from God, but he has made peace. Christ took on himself the enmity and judgment that we deserve, and he made peace possible by the shedding of the blood on the cross. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus gives us peace not as the world gives, and we need not let our hearts be troubled. And as our Prince of Peace, he keeps us secure. So either we try to bear on our own shoulder the burden, the weight of sin and guilt, or we come under the reign of Christ, the Prince of Peace, and let him bear the weight of sin and death. The baby of Bethlehem and the man of Calvary, he came to rule. He came to be king over our lives. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, came with wisdom. He came with purpose, perfect plan. Trust him. Worship him. He's the mighty God, and he will accomplish all his purposes. Trust him. Worship him. He's the everlasting father, and he reigns eternally. Trust him. Worship him. And as a prince of peace, he reconciles us while we were yet still his enemies. Trust him and worship him. The future hope that Isaiah declares for this small, faithful remnant in his own day, those living in darkness, has nothing, the future hope has nothing to do with political deliverance. It has nothing to do with anything earthly whatsoever. It has nothing to do with aligning with earthly power, right king, or right kingdom. The ultimate hope he gives us is Jesus Christ, who dealt with our greatest enemy of sin, death, and the devil. If you're not a Christian, I want to ask you, what alliances in this world are you banking on right now? The Bible pleads with us to align ourselves, ally ourselves with the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Like General Titus and Ahaz, we are often driven by angst, wanting to align with the winning team. I mean, who, who wants to be on the wrong side? Now, the first advent has already come, and this Messiah told us clearly that the second advent, second coming, is surely on its way. Be on the side of Christ the King, the giver of joy, bringer of peace, the light of the world. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for so loving this world that you gave your only begotten Son. We thank you for giving us new life through your Son. Would you grant us the grace to trust and worship you, for you alone are worthy. I want to invite you to take time now to continue in prayer as you examine your heart and come before the Lord.